The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from John 12, verses 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Matt. So many of you may know that I am a Shark Week nerd enthusiast. Um, I do love it. And one of the things my seven-year-old has said with such magic to me lately is, Daddy, I'd love to watch Shark Week with you. I'm like, are you serious right now? Did you just say that? And immediately, though, there are moments that come to my mind like, okay, there's some of these shows where like people are attacked on this thing. I got to really think about which shows he can watch and can't. Um, And one of the things that's um, interesting about Shark Week that they bring up every time. So if you want to watch Shark Week, it's usually in July or August, by the way. Happy to watch it with you. Um, And The thing I just love about it is there's so little we know about sharks, honestly. Like, we act like we know a lot, and they kind of almost say the same thing every year, you know, for that whole week. And even though I watch it every time, they talk about the same things, where they are. Like, we've just discovered this, but it's like barely a little bit more information that they knew last time. And they always make reference to uh, movies that have made sharks, you know, demonized, like Jaws and those kind of things, which I certainly would not have my seven-year-old watch for a long time. Just so you know, don't worry about that. Um, But one of the things about, you know what's interesting about that movie Jaws that really drew it out, it was brilliant, is Steven Spielberg, when he first made that movie, um, he was, what he was wanting to do is he actually had this giant mechanical shark and it, it had so many issues with it, it broke and actually sank to the bottom of the tank. And so he had to go back and think, okay, how do I remake, how do I remake this movie? Because if you think about it, like, you, if you've seen it before, you're kind of like, you only see, like, little glimpses of this thing here or there. You only know little bits of information about, okay, the shark can take out a whole dock or it can, like, sink a boat or, you know, you're like, uh, but I haven't seen it yet. And you don't see it until the end. Well, the reason is, is because the shark sank and he had to only, he had to go back and go, okay, how do I show this shark and bits and pieces of it? And it was so genius. Think about all the movies from then that learn from that kind of category, that building of suspense. Like you see glimpses of the power and then at the end, there's this reveal, right? 
And that's what it was. You know, the triumphal entry is a very interesting event because we sit on this side of it and we look back. And in fact, one reason I chose John's version, there are actually four versions of the triumphal entry. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's. So the four gospels. John's is actually significantly different than the other three. The other three are considered synoptic gospels, meaning one view. They have a very similar vision. The John's is a little different because it makes reference to the fact that they understood everything that happened in the triumphal entry only when Jesus was glorified. So it's almost like they're looking back now. And they only saw glimpses of his power. Even in this moment um, and before this, and we'll talk about this this morning, Lazarus is there with him. The others don't really mention this. And if you read just above in the passage, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And all these people are coming out, not just because Jesus is there, but because they were like, dude, this guy he just raised from the dead is walking with him. We want to see that. It makes a little mention of it at the end of this. The crowds were enormous. And it was, it was this culmination of wanting to see who is this one who who they've only seen glimpses of. And we know on this side, this powerful glory, but what was it like for them on that side? This building of this tension of, of Jesus coming to Jerusalem and not on a horse with a sword, but on the back of a donkey. What, what is this king? And the other, many of the other versions asked this question as, as, as Jesus was riding in. They said, who is this? Who is this? And I think that's the question we need to ask this morning. Who is this? Who is Jesus, really? And what kind of a king is he? So we're going to look at this in his character in three ways. We're going to look at his praise, the praise in here. We're going to look at his reign, the power he has. And then finally, his glory. We're going to look at his praise, his reign, and his glory. You know, in each of the account, this is there is a great multitude that day. Even in the beginning here, it says, The next day, the large crowd had come together to the feast, that heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So there was kind of this, this stirring, so to speak. The city was already swelling because of what was going on with the Feast of Tabernacles and the Passover, which was a huge event, which all these people who are Jewish or, or held to Jewish belief would come into the city. We kind of know that feeling. You know when you drive certain times of the year and you're <laughs> hitting traffic and you're like, what is going on in Nashville right now? I cannot even get to the normal places I get to. You know, you just start complaining. Well, you realize, oh yeah, it's CMA week or it's this or there are things shut down. And all these people come into Nashville from all the surrounding areas. I mean, if you think about where Nashville is located is so central to the U.S. that people come into Nashville from all ways. A lot of people move here because of that, who are uh, travelers or influential and have either need to use travel buses or sorts of move out of here. This is why Music City is so popular in and of itself, not just writing the music, but how it goes out from here. So the city began to swell, and this was their Holy Week, and the feast that was there, and they came for that feast, and they and imagine this, being like downtown, right? And all of a sudden, there are all these concerts, and there's this one that everybody kind of goes, starts flocking to, and you're kind of looking around like, who is this? And you recognize some songs, but you're not really sure who's, who always sings it. And everybody's kind of singing, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's so-and-so. And you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard of this guy or that woman. You know, like, they, they, they sing this song. Yeah, you kind of start making connections. That's kind of what was happening. The city was bustling. 
and the crowds were gathering. And all of a sudden, here comes this phrase, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then even added in John's version, even the king of Israel. It's taken from Psalm 118. And this was a very fascinating phrase. Because what they were screaming, what they were praising out was, wasn't just random. They were, they were praising a, a, a very ancient phrase that went towards royalty. It went towards things that had happened in their past, the redeemer, victor. And it meant, like, as I said earlier, save now. And they would actually take palm branches and they would, uh, they would take willow and myrtle and, and tie it to palm branches and it, called, and it was called lula and they would raise them up. And every time Hosanna was said, it would just go, they'd raise them up and say, Hosanna. And so you'd see all these palm branches go up and then come down, come up and then down. And it was victor. But, but at the same time, they're sitting there thinking, okay, we know some glimpses of who this guy is. We see Lazarus with him. But who is this guy really? Is he the one who can save us from all the things that we see, all the things that we experience? They begin to ask the questions that we often ask. Is who Jesus is really practical and connective to the day-to-day problems that I have this week? Does Jesus really enter into the oppression that I feel every morning I wake up? They begin to ask that question, or is he, or, or is this praise kind of mocking? I remember years ago, I was just I met one of my closest friends from high school and even college. His birthday was this last week, and I called him. And I have so many memories of him. He, sometimes he listens to my sermons, and it's very humbling, actually, to have somebody that knows you that well listen to you speak. It's kind of like, oh, gosh. But one trip that we took in college was we wanted to take a huge road trip. We went through 11 states in nine days. And yeah, it was you really get to know somebody close when you're in a car, you know, stuck for miles, you know, driving from, we drove at one point all the way from Vail, Colorado to Memphis, Tennessee in one day. And man, that was like crazy. I mean, we started going crazy. Like just nuts in the car, like what's going on? You're driving through Kansas and there's nothing but what you expect, wheat fields right there, just nothing. Well, we go all the way to Memphis, and we found places that we could stay, of course, with friends. We get to, one of our goals when we got to Memphis was to stay with a friend of ours from college. We went to Baylor, and uh, we stayed with them in Memphis, and we were like, you know what? One of our biggest goals of this trip, we had kind of listed them out, was we want to put flowers on Elvis's grave. Like, that is our thing. We are going to go to, we're going to go to Graceland. And we're going to put, we are going to see where the king is. So we go to Graceland and I don't know if you've been there before, but they kind of warn you before you go in, like, this is not, you know, a huge mansion like you would expect. This is, it was a mansion in that time period. And, you know, they kind of give you that spiel. Well, you go in and it really is, is, is an amazing, pretty house, but it is kind of one of those places that's interesting. And they have like, you know, things you hear about the jungle room. If you heard this room before, like there are certain parts of this house, you're like, that's weird. Why would you do that? You know, but the, the jungle room is this place that has like carpet on the walls and like a strange thing. And there are people, I mean, we did lay flowers and I was going, so my friend in the moment in the jungle room downstairs says, decides he's just going to kneel, you know, just as kind of, so he kneels down next to me and I'm like looking at him going, oh my gosh, it's hilarious. And this woman comes up and puts her hand on his shoulder and is like, it's okay. 
It's a, and I'm, I just kind of like leave him there. I just kinda, and so what does he do? He just is like, he didn't know what to get up. It was the funniest thing. He, he was like, I don't know. Do I get up and give a hug? Do I say sorry? But, you know, like for this woman, she recognized he was really, you know, recognizing the king in his court. But for him, he was mocking the king. You know, it's hard to tell in this passage because a lot of these people in this moment, and you recognize this, they are saying, Hosanna, save now. And not too long from now, they will say, crucify him. So is their praise real or not, is the question. What is their praise? Is he a real victor? Is he really that powerful? Is he really a king of that? magnitude? It, it, what is this praise? You know what's beautiful about the praise that Jesus receives here? Is that regardless, whether they praise with complete misguided hearts or with mockery, he still receives it. And you know what is so humbling? And you probably know this because I'm sure there have been plenty of times and may even be this morning that you come or you're watching online or you're singing a song and you're, you're not really that connected. You're not really there all the way. You feel like, man, I'm so distracted. My week has just torn me up. But you know what Jesus does? He still receives your praise. And you know why? is because your praise and my praise, what we do in this building does not put him in the position of king. Our praise doesn't make him king. Because he's king, we praise. Amen. And that is a rich blessing for our hearts. What C.S. Lewis said years ago when he talked about praise, and I love how he said this. He said, Praise doesn't just express what we enjoy, it completes it. So our hearts, when they praise him, are completing the joy in when we meet with him. What was so rich and beautiful about what Jesus did here is that he went through the city and received the praise, even from his disciples. <laughs> even knowing they themselves would run and betray him because he knew exactly who he was as a king. And that our praise continues to shape and grow based on the object of our joy. And if he is the, at the heart of it, it will transform us. That's what's so beautiful about it. Praising him is completing that joy. What brings you most delight? What brings you the greatest joy? What, what is it that gets you on your toes to, to praise, to complete the enjoyment? What if there's a king and a relationship that can take your praise to new heights that you've never experienced? And what if it was true that he receives it whether your heart is broken today, tired, sleepy, or not? Because he will not change being king. He receives you and receives that praise. What an encouragement. What a hope for us in that. That he receives that praise. You know, as the king comes in, you expect 
the king to kind of display themselves in their reign, right? So a king receives praise in this way, but a king really shows their reign. And, and, and this passage connected to all the others does that. Jesus, in verse 14, found a young donkey, sat on it, just as written in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king coming, sitting on a colt. And the disciples didn't understand these things at first, right? So that part is actually in all four Gospels. And and here's an interesting reason why. Is why is Jesus coming on a donkey? A donkey is not a, a really powerful animal. I mean, it it really is that point. The point is, is a donkey is kind of a low animal. It's not one you would think about a conqueror or a king displaying themselves coming into a city. And in fact, it would would jog their memory of something and have someone praise. And even the, the palm branches and all of this episode had happened a number of times before. In the second century BC, Judas Maccabeus would ride into the city in a very similar way. And even before that, in 1 Kings 1, you can read about David with Solomon coming in the same way to proclaim his son to be the rightful king. But in both instances, different than this one, they came in on horses. Judas Maccabeus rode into the city with a horse and a sword saying, I am going to be the freedom fighter for Israel. I'm going to free everybody. That's what you expect a king to do. But in this instance, Jesus takes a donkey and rides in. And they know what he's done. They, know, they, they have been seeing all the, as we said, the glimpses of power here. And yet this is what he chooses because his, his reign is not one of power that squashes, it's of humility. It's incredible that the one who has the most power actually submits himself underneath it. He has incredible humility. And it would jog their memory of all these things of Judas Maccabeus, of their Old Testament history. But to see this one who can actually not just squash somebody to death, but actually beat death itself to bring them up out of it. Whoa. They even have a sign of that. And this wasn't some humble brat. Jesus, look, Jesus didn't do this uh, to get on a donkey as a humble brag. You know, the humble brag that we all are very good at. Instagram is the perfect place of humble brags. You know, it's like, I'm so tired from my vacation at Tahoe. No, no, no. You know, like that kind of thing. You know, uh, there's a great line from um, uh, Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Darcy says it this way. I, I've always, always thought this is a great one. Nothing is more deceitful than the appearance of humility. It is often only carelessness of opinion and sometimes an indirect boast, same kind of thing. Jesus is not coming in to just show some indirect boast. He's coming in in full humility. And here's what's amazing. This passage is quoted from Zechariah. It's actually uh, a passage in Zechariah 9 that says the king is going to come in and free his people. That's actually what this passage was about. Zechariah 9 was about this fulfillment. Who's coming in? Who is this king? And from the Old Testament, they would be thinking, who's this king coming in? And Zechariah 9 talks about the king coming in on the donkey. This fulfillment of that. 
You know what's fascinating about Jesus that's very different from any other king in his reign? Every other king in their reign want to come in with power to make history. That's what Judas Maccabeus did. In fact, you can read later the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, they're, that you're gaining nothing. They're kind of talking to each other. It's kind of funny the, the way John writes it because you get to see the, the Pharisees looking at each other like, what do we do? They're all going after him. They're all going to follow him. Why? Because they think the same way we all do. Here's another guy who's going to make history. You know the difference of what Jesus knew what he was doing? He's not there to make history. He's here to fulfill it. And that is a massive difference. If you have a king coming who can make their stamp in, you know, time, what are the 10 most wonderful, greatest leaders of all time? That's great. But what if you have someone who's a leader who says their power and their reign and their leadership is not about making it, it's about fulfilling it. That takes it to a whole nother level. There's even a, 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 a thing that I read some time ago about level five leadership in the Harvard Business Review that actually supports what we're just looking at right now. It's actually crazy. Listen to this. It talks about the triumph of humility and fierce resolve. Level five leader and executive in whom extreme personal humility blends paradoxically with intense professional will in this 2001 article, Collins, Jim Collins, who wrote this article, paints a compelling and counterintuitive portrait of the skills and personality traits necessary for effective leadership. He identifies the characteristics common to level five leaders. Listen to this. The number one on the list, humility, will, ferocious resolve, and the tendency to give credit to others while assigning blame to themselves. Do you hear the complete opposite of what the Pharisees just showed you? Giving credit to others while assigning blame to themselves. What is the difference with Jesus and the good news of the gospel? The Pharisees would love to point the blame. Ah, look, is it not the easiest thing from the beginning of the Bible when sin enters the picture? Do you know what one of the number one things that happens? Blame goes out to everybody else. No one wants to point the finger back at what they did. Adam's like, you give me that woman. You give me that, that snake did that. The woman says the snake did it. The snake's like, blame goes everywhere. Because what this king brings that's different and unique is fulfilling history by being so humble that the one who can fulfill, think about, think about the paradox of that. If you can fulfill history, you have all the power in your corner, and yet you come in riding on a donkey? And what is his mission? To go to the cross to take the blame for every single one of us. That is a kingship unheard of. That is a kingdom that we all long for and yet wonder if it could ever be true. And yet he presents himself. He comes in riding on the back of a colt, a foal of a donkey. It should stifle us. It should throw us off. Because you know what happens in the rest of Zechariah 9? If you were to read on from where that quote happens, this is what it says. 
It says, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. He calls the people prisoners of hope. And if there's ever a place where we need hope, I mean, what a beautiful phrase for Zechariah to say. What this king does is he brings in hope in a way to us as prisoners, not only look back and think, man, that was amazing for them, but we get to see even on this side of Palm Sunday and live in attention right now as we look at this table and realize this table's pointing us forward to hope. That we live in a hope that is so unique. Because in all the tensions that we ask, okay, where is, and, and ask this with me, where is Jesus' reign now? How do we know that Jesus has the power now? Or is this just something that he did? What it means is we live with, as prisoners of hope now because of the same way that the, the disciples said. Listen, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. We've seen the full picture of his glory. And what this table is, is a table for those of him who need hope. That Jesus still isn't dead in the grave. He's actually alive. This week tells us that it doesn't end on Friday. It goes to the next Sunday. In fact, every Sunday that the church gathers, we're actually celebrating what's called Resurrection Sunday every Sunday. And we're going to walk through this week together, and the church has done it for centuries, to guide our hearts through what, what did Jesus really do in walking through the good news of the gospel. So we know, so we can soak in, so we can sit in as prisoners of hope that live in attention now until he comes again of who is the king we follow. You know that... Um, one of the things that if you read, and I'm, this is going to be, from time to time I do this with you guys. Here's your homework for today. You don't you love that? Psalm, read Psalm 118. Because right after where Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest this passage is read, hear, hear this real quick. Psalm 118, 27. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. It moves directly from praise to sacrifice. You know why? Because when we come to this table, who is the king who knows that he's not just the one on the throne, but who becomes the sacrifice? That's why this is a table of body and blood. Who is the one who gets bound? Who's the one who goes to the cross and that every drop of his blood is not for naught, but pinpoints every place of your sin and discouragement and despair so that you may live in hope. We return to this table every week to be reminded that we live in faith of the one who didn't just come once, but who will come again. And our hope, we will no longer have hope. Do you realize hope and faith themselves will disappear one day? 
because they will be fully fulfilled in the one who fulfilled this simple riding in on a colt, who's fulfilled all the dreams of our lives as this king. He is one worthy to be followed. Amen. 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 Let's stand together.